0: Hey there, I'm Amy Walter, co-host of The Takeaway. In the Politics Brief podcast, you'll hear the best segments from all the different WNYC shows covering the 2018 elections. It's the sharpest, most timely talk, analysis and original reporting from shows like On the Media, The Brian Lehrer Show and, of course, The Takeaway. Also from the WNYC Newsroom, which is tracking key races in New York and New Jersey. The stakes are high and we want you to have the information you need. It's what we do. Welcome to Politics Brief from WNYC.
1: It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning, everyone. So the debate over Brett Kavanaugh's fitness for the Supreme Court has taken some more unexpected turns. And if you weren't watching the news last night... You don't know about this yet. One is that a Yale classmate of Kavanaugh's named Chad Luddington has disclosed that Kavanaugh precipitated a bar fight at around 1 in the morning after a UB-40 reggae concert during their junior year at Yale in 1985. The New York Times and other media this morning have obtained a police report from the incident, which included Kavanaugh accused of throwing ice at another bar patron who he thought was UB40 lead singer, Ali Campbell. It wound up in a fight with glass and blood and the police report characterizing the incident as an assault. Also, Kavanaugh refusing to say in the police report whether he threw the ice and ultimately no charges being filed. That's one. Another unexpected turn. NBC News says it has obtained text messages of Kavanaugh and his team In the days before the New Yorker article came out, you know, the one with claims of a sexual incident by Yale classmate Deborah Ramirez, in the days before the New Yorker article was published, Kavanaugh, or people representing him, were reportedly texting around looking for people to refute Ramirez's story if it surfaced. Now, this could be important because it would contradict Kavanaugh's testimony at last Thursday's hearing that he only learned of Ramirez's allegation through the New Yorker piece. Here is Orrin Hatch questioning Kavanaugh. When did you first hear of Ms. Ramirez's allegations against you? Uh,
0: In the last, in the period since then, in the New Yorker story.
1: So did Kavanaugh lie under oath about when he knew about Deborah Ramirez's accusation? Does the bar fight in junior year add further weight to questions about Kavanaugh's past being clean enough for the Supreme Court, or does it go down as a small youthful indiscretion? Will the FBI get to either of these things in their current investigation, which has a Friday deadline? Those are the unexpected new twists as the focus of the debate moves increasingly from simply whether Kavanaugh assaulted Christine Blasey Ford in high school and more toward truthfulness under oath and judicial temperament in general. My first guest today is MSNBC and NBC News national political correspondent, Steve Kornacki. Now, if you watch MSNBC, you may know him as the endearing young guy who stands in front of the map of the United States during election season, you know, like a political weatherman, and plays the role of data geek, showing polls and trends and election campaign scenarios, and now Steve Kornacki has a book called The Red and the Blue, The 1990s and the Birth of Political Tribalism. Steve, so nice to have you on the show. Welcome to WNYC. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be here. Let's talk about the news first, and then we'll take a deeper dive to connect the 1990s with everything that's going on today. How significant do you think your network's text messaging story is? What's the buzz over there about Kavanaugh possibly trying to drum up support against Deborah Ramirez, before the Ronan Farrow Jane Mayer New Yorker story was published,
0: yeah, the word from the committee, and certainly in the reporting today, the official response from the committee, the Republican, you know, controlled Republican majority committee, is they don't think they're saying these texts shed any new light, give any reason to to change the the, the sort of the uh, course of events that Mitch McConnell so far has set in motion. Now, I think the bigger question, though with any of this, and we saw this last Friday, is does this move a Jeff Flake? Does this move a Susan Collins? Does this move one of the senators who is potentially movable on this? And if that senator were to move, would force Mitch McConnell and force the uh, the, the committee chair to make a, a new decision?
1: And the junior year bar fight documented with a police report that includes Kavanaugh's role?
0: Yeah, and, and again, this gets to, and we can, we can talk about this a little bit, there's some echoes of the past here, some past nomination fights a little bit. You know, I think it gets to the case Case that some of Kavanaugh's critics have tried to make, you know, the idea that uh, th- th- there was almost a pattern of behavior at an earlier time in his life, at a time of life that would have intersected with these allegations that creates some smoke. But I- I'd say nothing nothing directly in that, uh, in that new reporting about the bar incident would speak to sexual assault, certainly. We don't
1: think of Yalies as getting into bar fights, <laughs> uh, but all right. I mean, this is documented, but the senators will have to decide, as I guess you're indicating, if they care about another single incident from long ago because it connects with other things as a pattern of behavior or temperament or, or overridden by the fact that he had many years without anything like that that we know of as an adult.
0: And what it gets into too with these with these new text messages, there's a, a group of people apparently, you know, who are part of this uh, this text thread, these text exchanges. What that would mean if the committee were to say, okay, we want to take a look at this, or the FBI were to say, okay, we want to take a look at this, that would mean interviewing each of those people, and that means this week, this one week deadline that sort of Jeff Flake insisted on, that Republicans have sort of insisted on. It gets tougher to fall to have everything fall within that one week if you want to go and expand it that way.
1: But the text messages and the question. Of- of possibly perjury or just saying an untruth uh, under oath there in that clip we played with Orrin Hatch, uh, whether or not it rises to a level of criminal perjury. Nevertheless, he it seems like he said one thing about when he learned of the Deborah Ramirez allegation, like he didn't know about it all these years until he read The New Yorker. And then it seems like it's turning out, according to your network, that um, he was out there uh he or his representatives texting in advance of that story to try to discredit a story that they knew about.
0: And, and I think that what you what you hear sort of from the, uh, from the Kavanaugh side, from the Republican side, his defenders on this, is that he also had testified more vaguely that he'd been aware that calls were being made to his Yale classmates before the publication of the New Yorker story. And the implication of that defense is basically, hey, I didn't know exactly what she was alleging. Mm-hmm. I knew there were calls being made. I was curious what those calls were about. Therefore, I made inquiries along those lines. And then with the publication of the New York story, I found out what the specifics were.
1: I see. And one other thing about this, part of both NBC's report on the text messages and the Ramirez charge and other media's bar fight reporting Indicate that the people now involved in disclosing these things, at least as of last night, were frustrated in their attempts to go on the record with the FBI. Do you know if that's changed?
0: That and that's that's the theme. And I, as of sitting in the studio right now, about ten a.m., I have not uh, seen or heard anything that that, uh, that the reporting has changed from that.
1: And and what's your best indication over there at m- NBC that um, that this is about is the FBI. Under orders, there's been all this back and forth about how limited is this investigation. The president says it's not limited. People still suspect that it is. I don't know the truth, Uh, but are they constrained from uh, interviewing these people with respect to these incidents in any way? Yeah, and
0: that's and I, I should say I'm not on the inside of the reporting, so I you know yeah. I'm I'm reading it with everybody else and, and listening to my colleagues explain it. I, I do know. Look, you've got the public statements from the president on this. Uh, you also had you know Frank Fogluzzi, who's a former uh, FBI official. He is uh, he was on our air yesterday saying that his his reporting, his own sources from within the FBI, were suggesting constraint. Now, that was before things apparently expanded a little bit yesterday afternoon, but it's one of those where, you know, I see the reporting everybody else does, and uh, uh, I'm watching with everybody else, but I don't have the inside information on that.
1: Listeners, maybe you know the voice, and if you watch MSNBC, you certainly know the face. Of Steve Kornacki, national political correspondent for MSNBC and NBC News. And we're talking about the news of today. Uh, But Steve also has a brand new book called The Red and the Blue, The 1990s and the Birth of Political Tribalism. Now, if there's anything you want to say or ask Steve Kornacki, because you've watched him on television, but you never had him over to dinner, um, or anything else you want to bring up about what we're talking about or we'll talk about, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. You know, we talk so casually about Red America and Blue America like this dichotomy was always a thing, but it dates only from the 1990s?
0: It, it's amazing. If, if you go back, say, 25 years, even 20 years, uh, and you had said to somebody, you know, I'm part of Blue America or I'm part of Red America... They would have had no idea what you were talking about. Um, In in fact, the television networks, uh, in their coverage uh, of election nights, uh, from the start of color television through the 1990s, there was no clear official scheme for the colors. You you could find years when the Democrats were red, when the Republicans were blue. You could find years when they used yellow. And it just so happened that uh, at the end of the 90s, the start of this century, the 2000 uh, presidential election, every network was synced up, blue for the Democrats, red for the Republicans, pretty much for arbitrary reasons, and we had that perfect tie election, that near perfect tie election. And it wasn't just how close the election was, obviously. It was the fact that it lingered, you know, for more than a month afterward with the Florida recount. And people just started staring at that and saying, what a picture of division in this country. The entire South just deep red. You remember at the start of the decade, Bill Clinton had emerged as the Democrat who could win back the South. And by the end of the decade, you kind of said, The South, as it's currently constituted, looks gone for the Democrats. And conversely, the the Northeast, you know, sort of from Maryland on North, um, deep blue, with the the exception by about 1,000 votes of of New Hampshire in 2000. But otherwise, deep, deep blue, deep blue along the Pacific Coast, um, just those stark geographical, cultural... Demographic divisions and the color became the symbol of it. It was a the the term really took hold about a week after the uh, 2000 election during the recount. David Letterman uh, was on his show and he said, "You know, I got a solution to this whole impasse. Why doesn't Al Gore become the president of the blue states and George W. Bush the president of the red states?" And I think that's the America we've kind of been living in since.
1: Yeah, and there's even a tiny movement. can't even call it a movement, but there's a proposal out there. Maybe you saw this Atlantic article maybe 18 months or so ago called Blue Exit, Hmm. which actually recommends that the blue states consider saying, you know, the heck with you, Texas. Even Texas might be getting to be a purple state, but that's another story. You know, to heck with you who want to hold all these, what we might consider, right-wing values. Go ahead and have your country. New York and New Jersey and Connecticut and California and a few other blue states blue exit why don't we secede and have our own progressive nation
0: yeah and i mean and you've seen you know t- you've had that talk on the republican side in texas before right. you've had that talk just in california i know even within california there've been proposals republicans there want the inland empire part of california to be its own state democrats want the the coastal part i think what it speaks to is it's to what i think is the big change in politics in the 1990s and and, and the theme in this book is The thing that was true at the start of that decade and the thing that had been true was in in political science, the term is ticket splitter. But what it really means is, you know, people would show up on Election Day and they'd vote for the Republican for president. They'd vote for the Democrat for governor and they'd jump back and forth between the parties within an election in between elections and you'd see even in the course of an election you'd see wide swings in polling you know in 1988 Michael Dukakis went from 20 points ahead in the summer of 88 at one point he fell 20 points behind in the fall 40 points that's how many voters were sort of figuring things out and and we now live in an era where, where ticket splitting almost doesn't happen anymore people you know I am blue I am red I'm part of the blue team I'm part of the red team we even have polling out It's amazing to me in 2016, and it resonates just by everything I see on the ground, but more than 60% of self-identified Republicans and more than 60% of self-identified Democrats said they would be upset. If a family member right. married somebody from the opposite party, right. those numbers were unheard of a generation ago. More
1: than if their family member married someone of a different religion mm-hmm. or a different race. And certainly that order of things, that pecking order of what would concern you if a family member married outside of one of your groups, that's really changed.
0: And I think that's when we start saying tribalism because polarization was always the, your partisanship and polarization. When we start saying tribalism, it's that idea that the term Democrat, the term Republican, the color red, the color blue have taken on such deep cultural meaning, sub d- such deep individual meaning to people that the idea of, you know, hey, my family, we don't deal with that, you know, mm-hmm. that
1: sort of person. People can barely go to Thanksgiving. You s- You should listen to the calls we get on the week before Thanksgiving when we talk about people stealing themselves and gearing up. Attention, huh? Right? Your red state Thanksgiving is a common call, and we have. The uncle, right? Recent years. (laughs) Uh, Here's our first question to you from a listener, and it comes via Twitter. It says Can you ask Steve about whether recent votes in Texas and Hispanic turnout should cause concern to, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase after that, but concern to Republicans about. Texas turning purple. I think this listener is envisioning the Steve Kornacki of MSNBC mm-hmm. <laughs> standing in, standing in front of your red and blue election map.
0: Uh, I'll try to do it without the electronic board uh, uh, as a as a prop here, although it usually breaks, so it's it's probably going to be just uh, just the same. Right. So this is actually, I, I think, as I look ahead to the midterm election, I, I think this is the biggest wild card right now. It, it's it's the Hispanic vote factor in this election because we've seen now through polling through special elections. Just through on-the-ground engagement, you know, protest marches, starting with the women's march, uh, uh, Donald Trump's inaugural weekend, we have seen clear energy and activation among among the Democratic base sort of in, I would say, metropolitan areas of this country, outside Washington, D.C., certainly New Jersey, outside New York, all the way out to, to California, around Los Angeles, San Francisco. The question for Democrats has been, okay, can they supplement that with equivalent energy or some, you know, reasonable approximation of that kind of energy among Hispanic voters? And if they can do that It opens up possibilities for them in Florida, in Texas, uh, in some key districts in California where they've got a shot, where that sort of suburban activation that we've seen needs something else and the something else it needs is that level of support from Hispanic voters. And I have to say, that's the biggest wild card, because for Democrats, if you wanna say, if you're a Democrat, and what do you wanna worry about between now and November, I think that's the answer.
1: That's that's such an interesting answer, and I think to many progressives, a counterintuitive answer, because as they look at the possibility of the Texas Democratic candidate, Beto O'Rourke, possibly defeating Ted Cruz, of all people, and that being crucial to flipping the Senate and let's say the Kavanaugh nomination doesn't go through; they need the Senate in order to block Trump from putting another person on the Supreme Court altogether. But with Trump being so anti-Hispanic, let's just say it in their uh, in his in his rhetoric and the way he launched his campaign, what's central to his presidency, um, you know, at least uh, anti-Latino immigrant. Both legal and illegal. Before you call up and say, "No, it's just the illegals." Um, No, they want to cut way, way back on legal immigration from Latin America too. You would think they would be super energized. And I think this was
0: something, though, that we uh, we got a little bit of a reality check on in 2016. Um, Donald Trump did not do well by any historical standard with the uh, with the Hispanic vote in 2016. But if you compare the exit poll number of 2012 when Barack Obama was reelected. Barack Obama won the Hispanic vote in 2012 by a 71 to 27 margin. In other words, a 44 point margin. In 2016, Hillary Clinton won the Hispanic vote. It was 65 to 29. In other words, a 36 point margin. So just in, in terms of the net benefit to the Democratic candidate, Trump did better than Mitt Romney did. Now, I don't know if that speaks to any particular strength or or opening Donald Trump has. The one thing you'll hear, I think, from Republicans, and I I, I think you hear this a little more quietly now, it's a little bit more perspective. They're thinking this might be something in the future, and I I, I put it out there only because it's an interesting possibility. Um, They say that one of the future divides, we have seen this, the gender gap has been a big thing in American politics since 1980, and it has exploded into a chasm in the Trump era. What you'll hear from some Republicans is a suggestion that that is going to start affecting the Hispanic vote and that among male Hispanics in particular, you're going to have some movement toward the Republicans that's driven by those gender dynamics. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an interesting thing to look for potentially. You're listening to the Politics Brief podcast. We'll be right back after a quick
1: break. Steve Kornacki, NBC News and MSNBC National Political Correspondent with us. His new book is The Red and the Blue, The 1990s and the Birth of Political Tribalism. But the culture wars go back to the 1960s at least, don't they? I mean, let me do a one-paragraph prehistory, and uh, I know you listen sometimes. I don't know if you heard. We did like a seven-week series on the culture wars from World War II to the present this spring. And you could count the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War debate, the counterculture, environmental movement, feminist movement, sexual revolution. Roe versus Wade in 73, birth of the modern religious right in the 60s and 70s in response to Supreme Court rulings. I think it usually gets traced back to the prayer and schools ruling in 1962, 11 years before Roe the election of Reagan as a right-wing tribal hero in 1980, why isn't all that the birth of political modern tribalism?
0: The, the answer is because w- the title of the book, The Red and the Blue, is about how all of what you're describing became identified and embodied by the parties, the two political parties. The Republican Party of clear through the 1980s contained authentic liberals, People you would look at today, and and you'd scratch your head when you read about their ideology, pro-choice, pro-gay rights, open to tax increases. Somebody like, you know, old senator from New York, Charles Mathias, to date myself a little bit more and make a New York reference, Jacob Javits. Remember, Jacob Javits used to run with the Republican Party endorsement and the Liberal Party endorsement simultaneously in New York. So that was that kind of cross-pollination. You had a Democratic Party, again, really into the 1990s that was shared by conservatives from the South very conservative uh, folks from the South and liberals from the North, the, the big city North and, and and sort of college-educated liberals. So you had this cross-pollination that was happening that in some ways, I think, made the country more governable because it made it easier to form coalitions in Congress. And And, and one of the major turning points in the sorting out of American politics that results in, in red and blue that I point to in the book, it, it's the rise of Newt Gingrich. Mm. Because Newt Gingrich took a look at the dynamic I'm describing in Congress. And when he got there in the late 1970s, he saw what was known as a permanent Democratic majority. At that point, it had been a generation since Republicans controlled the House. And Gingrich told Republicans, we're never going to get anywhere like this. We're never going to get anywhere if we have liberal Republicans, if we have moderate Republicans, if we have Republicans willing to compromise with Democrats. And Newt Gingrich very slowly, through some very dramatic sort of almost guerrilla tactics on the floor of the House, sold his party on that, changed his party. And by the 1990s, the the Republican Party becomes a thoroughly, to to, to use the term here, Gingrichized Gingrichized party. Uh, and, And when that Republican Party gets power through the Republican Revolution in 94, The country reacts to that, and I think blue America kind of takes shape in response to that.
1: Let me follow your lead on that. In 1989, George H.W. Bush, who we tend to remember as the last moderate Republican president, takes the oath of office, and Newt Gingrich is elected House Minority Mm -hmm. Whip. Here is Gingrich at that moment in 1989, celebrating being anointed at this uh, ceremony as House Minority Whip in full culture war mode.
0: And then through the 60s and 70s, the high-water mark of the left in America, as they taught us that you could have multi-partner sex without getting AIDS, you could have recreational drugs without becoming an addict, you could engage in criminal activities without strengthening criminals, you could weaken America without encouraging your enemies, and you could inflate your currency without having inflation. (laughs) And at the end of that period of learning, in 1980, the country began decisively to move away from the left.
1: Newt Gingrich, 1989. So Newt Gingrich as whip and George H.W. Bush as president. Compare and contrast.
0: Yeah, this is a defining moment in the modern history of the Republican Party in America. That's 1989 when you're playing that. In Gingrich at that point is completing this remarkable transformation. He had come to the House a decade earlier and he was a gadfly. He was a backbencher. He was an untenured professor from a small college in Georgia. It took him three times to get elected to Congress. If he'd lost one more time, he would have been a perennial candidate uh, out in Georgia and nobody ever would have heard of him. Instead, he comes to Congress. The Republican leadership at the time, Dick Cheney, is one of the top Republicans in Washington. They call him a pest. They call him an irritant. And by a decade later, he's in the position uh, that you're talking about there into that number two Republican position in the House. And then you've got George H.W. Bush. And a year later, there is this massive collision because George H.W. Bush, who famously campaigned in 1988 on the Read My Lips no new taxes Pledge to try to appeal to the, the Reagan base of the party, looked at a massive exploding federal deficit and said, I got to raise taxes. And he cut a deal. He did what was normally done, what had traditionally done, what Republicans like Bush did. He went to the Democratic leadership of the House and the Senate. He brought the Republican leaders in as well. They worked out a deal. There were going to be some tax hikes. There were going to be some spending cuts. They were all going to vote on it. And this was October of 1990, 28 years ago, almost to the day. And then Newt Gingrich. Step forward, a member of the House Republican leadership, and he said, the Republican party that I've worked to build cannot stand for this. The Republican party I've worked to build cannot get behind a tax hike that's the product of a dirty deal with the Democrats. And Newt Gingrich rallied the Republicans in the House. The Republican leader in the House was a guy named Bob Michael. Gingrich rallied Republicans against Michael, against Bush, against Bob Dole, and he killed the deal. He killed the deal on the floor. It was this unbelievable failure, a midnight vote, first week of October 1990, a humiliating defeat for Bush. It showed you what the Republican Party was becoming. Bush then had to go and cut a new deal, basically rely on Democratic votes to get it passed. A lot of people look at Bush, never lived down that tax hike and what that did to the Republican Party. And no Republicans voted for a tax hike since.
1: But then the story you tell in the book is Gingrich leveraging the 1995 government shutdown that backfiring on him and causing in a certain way the birth of modern blue america
0: and, and there it is Here, here's the big difference the, the gingrich i'm describing from 89 and 90 was very known in washington people like you and me on a show in 1990 would have mm-hmm. been talking about new gingrich he was not widely known across the country his uh, his name recognition would have been low everything for gingrich changes he goes from being a big figure in washington to a towering national figure because of 1994 and because out of nowhere, this Republican revolution, 54 seat gain in the house, 40 years of democratic rule washed away. And suddenly the country looks up and this guy named Newt is the speaker of the house. And they're hearing all this for the first time. And that clip you just played from 1989 is a great example. Again, people in the media had been familiarized with, uh, with this for years. People across the country heard that kind of rhetoric for the first time. And they thought back to the Republican party of, George H. W. Bush. Even Reagan, who as a as a performer, as a as a you know, it, it just as sort of a narrator of, of American life, had that very gentle edge to him. They heard that from Newt Gingrich. They, they saw Gingrich surrounded by heavily Southern, heavily uh, uh, Christian conservative, you know, sort of band of leaders in the Republican Party. They didn't necessarily recognize that as the Republican Party, especially in these parts, the northeast of the United States, didn't recognize that party. And, and Gingrich's reading of history was that this whole rise of conservatism from Goldwater in 64 through 94 was building to that confrontation in the fall of 95 over the size of government, over Medicare, over the crowning achievement of the great society. And he was going to rein it in. And he believed based on the 94 election and really based on the success of his whole political career to that moment, he believed this was the moment he finishes off Clinton, he finishes off liberalism, and he finishes off the Democratic Party as we knew it. And, and we discovered the country's attitudes. This is what the government shutdown, I think, taught us. This country conceptually likes small government. We like the idea of individualism. We like the idea of, I don't need the government, but we like Medicare. Mm. We like Social Security. And, and that, was, that was what was revealed, I think, by the government shutdown in 95. The Republicans, Bill Clinton called their bluff. They shut the government down over Medicare, and the country sided with Bill Clinton.
1: Get the big government out of my Medicare. There's the line. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Brett Kavanaugh was a minor player in those days as a staffer for Ken Starr, I think for four years, uh, as Starr conducted the Bill Clinton investigation that ended with Clinton impeached by the House of Representatives, though not then removed from office by the Senate. That's why Kavanaugh included this at his confirmation hearing last week about reasons Democrats might be out to get him.
0: Revenge on behalf of the Clintons and millions of dollars in money from outside left-wing opposition groups.
1: So, Brett Kavanaugh last week, give us the big-picture context of where he fits into this 1990s tale.
0: Yeah, it's, that, it's, the, it's basically the word whitewater. Remember that one? And, and, and whitewater was there. It was sort of the background noise of the 90s. Until it became everything, and and that was the um, the investigation that started, you know, of the, of the Clintons and a land deal they'd been part of in Arkansas in the 1970s, and this came up a little in the '92 campaign, and then in '93 and '94, the first two years of the Clinton presidency, uh, there were a series of events that led to. Uh, even Democrats to say, we need a special counsel, we need an independent counsel, the old independent counsel statute. And Ken Starr, Ken Starr was selected. He had a strong background in Republican politics. The Clinton White House feared him as soon as he was appointed. um, But he got the job with sort of an unlimited portfolio. He could go where he wanted, when he wanted, for how long he wanted. And eventually it, it, it brought him around. Um, he, he sort of connected with uh, with word of this affair that Monica Lewinsky and, and Bill Clinton had been having, and, and Bill Clinton was being deposed um, as part of the Paula Jones sexual harassment lawsuit, mm-hmm. and Ken Starr caught wind of the possibility that Bill Clinton was going to perjure himself, um, and, and Brett Kavanaugh was part of that that investigation that in 1998 became... Uh, the impeachment of bill this time 20 years ago in fact it was this week 20 years ago the first week Mm. of october 1998 that the house republicans were handed ken starr's report and voted they had been handed it a few weeks earlier but they voted this week to launch an impeachment inquiry one month before a midterm election and they believed that that impeachment inquiry would motivate their base get them to turn out and of course a month later they suffered a um, a shocking loss in that midterm election
1: and bill clinton was impeached for lying about sex under oath who knows if Brett Kavanaugh isn't going to lose his shot at the Supreme Court for lying about sex or alcohol under oath. History rhymes, isn't that what they say? <laughs> Jay in Manhattan, you're on WNYC with Steve Cornacki. Hi, Jay. Jay, are you there? Hello? Hi, Jay, you're on the air
0: hi how are you um just a quick question uh for steve and also brian brian i love your show thank you so much thank you. and steve look forward to uh to reading your book uh i just had a quick question um you know obviously with all this going on back in in the late 90s and uh, and, and all this uh president trump with with the election in 2016 you know what, what is it going to take for this country to come back together because right now we are the laughing stock and i'm just curious as to what's going to bring this back together or is this the new world order I, i'm just trying to figure this out my and trying to explain it to my kids and it's really difficult if if this is going to continue like this. That's a great question and and part of the um, as I was researching this as I was writing this I had that question in my mind the whole time because I'm sort of watching I think the tearing apart of the country and documenting it and saying okay how can it be undone. Um, Two things I would say number one I do think there is an extra factor right now. I think the world that was created by the 90s, the tribalized polarized world of red and blue, I think Donald Trump clearly came along uh, about 15 years later and added something very new to that, uh, something all encompassing, something I- I extremely inflammatory um, and extra suited for that world. I'm not sure, I, I am inclined to say if I had to guess that Trump as a political phenomenon is a is a one-off. Um, I, they are going to, I know there are going to be a lot of imitators. Whenever the, uh, the, the Trump moment ends, there are going to be a lot of folks on the Republican side, and I'm sure the Democratic side too, who try to figure out what it was that made Trump successful and mimic it with the insults and the in-your-face attitude and, and, and all of that sort of thing. I thought we got a little taste of it in the 2016 Republican primaries when Marco Rubio briefly thought that the way to beat Trump was to out-Trump Trump and it didn't work at all. It backfired miserably. And I get a sense that that's probably going to be the experience most people have trying to be Donald Trump. So I think just when you move to a post-Trump period, whenever that happens to be, I'm just not sure we'll have that ingredient in our politics, no matter how many people try. But I have to say, um, the, the the sobering thing that occurred to me while researching and writing the book was just um, how suited this country was, how suited the environment in this country was for so many reasons and maybe how suited human nature is for tribalism and for polarization. And I, I thought of in particular, just thinking about the media landscape, um, it's a theme in this book. Um, before the 90s, be- before this sort of modern era, you know, we still kind of lived in that uh, the old three broadcast networks, you know, ABC, CBS, NBC, and it was broadcast, right? You had to broadly reach out to Democrats, Republicans, liberals, conservatives. You had to bring everybody in, and everybody sort of had to watch one of a few sources of news. It's just the way the market kind of worked, the way technology was. Something Gingrich understood. Gingrich's strategy early on was to go around that. And he found a way early on in his career through something that was new at the time called C SPAN. And he was basically from the floor of the House in the 1980s, producing what you would now recognize as a conservative talk radio show or a Fox News show um, on C-SPAN. He got unlimited time every night and he would just fulminate uh, on the floor of the House. Well, today it's a lot more than C-SPAN. There's cable news, there's, there's streaming, there's endless platforms that are available for people to go around to the sort of prevailing dominant forms of media. And I think that reality lends itself to the kind of polarization and tribalism we're talking about here. And
1: I know you got to go in a minute, but sometimes in my more optimistic moments, I think maybe it's a good thing and the country needs to go through this because that three networks era that you're talking about, when there was a sort of centrist corporate control of information, different than even earlier in American history, before you know electronic uh, media, before television kind of centralized everything, when there were a lot of little local newspapers all over the country, and that was the media, and that was more politically diverse, I think, to mm-hmm. represent a lot more local political thinking. Maybe this had a break apart, and the internet gave the country the opportunity to do it, when there were so many people uh, from left to right who had a lot of grievances that they didn't feel were being expressed by the media. And now it's all out on the table. It's not bottled up. And maybe through that honesty, there's a path um, you know, back to more unity as a nation. Maybe there's not. Maybe redistricting has made it too hard. Maybe self-segregation into neighborhoods of politically like-minded people has made it too hard. All of those things. Um, but, um, but maybe we needed to go through this to come to a better place.
0: I, I, I love this, and I want to make this the new epilogue for the book. That's a, that's a <laughs> great—I think it's true because what you're, what you're getting at there is, is something that Newt Gingrich revealed— And Gingrich and Pat Buchanan in this book as well, that there was in some ways an illusion of consensus in American political life um, that lasted into the 1990s. And the Gingrich style, which was to rail against elite institutions, the elite media, elite culture, um, it exposed how big, how powerful the undercurrents were. Um, and, and he exposed things that, that people in his own party weren't comfortable with initially, but but sort of became, um, they saw the political potency. And the political potency was there because it had always been there. They just hadn't
1: necessarily known to look for it. If you're an MSNBC fan, uh, here's something for you tonight. Uh, Steve, upon the, this release of his new book, is going to be interviewed by MSNBC's Katie Turr at 7.30 at the Barnes & Noble on Union Square. So the book is The Red and the Blue, The 1990s and the Birth of Political Tribalism. And again, the event, if you're interested, tonight at 7.30 at the Barnes & Noble Union Square, Steve will be doing uh, a book event with MSNBC's Katie Turk. Thank you so much for making this one of your stops this morning. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. Much more to come.
0: Thanks for listening to Politics Brief. If you want more, go to WNYC.org slash election.